Luke 3, 1 through 20. Uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate began uh, being governor uh, of Judea, and Herod uh, being uh, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and uh, Trachonitis, and Lysania, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, uh, in the wilderness. <clears throat> and he went into all the region uh, around the Jordan, proclaiming uh, a baptism of repentance, uh, of forgiveness of sin, as it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin by saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came, uh, also came to be baptized and asked him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. God's word for God's people. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we thank you as Cole opened up today that, that your word doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. We thank you for men like John the Baptist that come and preach the good news of the gospel and repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That doesn't change. That message that was preached some 2,000 years ago is relevant to us this morning. And so, Lord, give us ears to see and eye, uh, ears to hear and eyes to see this morning the good news of the gospel through repentance and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, again, when I, when I say the word greatness, what do you think of? Greatness. Now, we can think of a number of things regarding greatness. We can think of something that is in, in size is great, like the ocean or the, or the Grand Canyon. Uh, we can think of it in terms of power. We can think of the, the great power of the sun. Uh, we can think of it greatness in terms of skill. We can think of like a beaver and how skilled he is at building those beaver dams. And so let's narrow it down just a little bit to greatness to a person. When, when you think of people who are great... Who comes to your mind? Who comes to your mind when you think of people who are great? Maybe you're a history buff and immediately your mind goes to Alexander the Great. Or, or, or reading right here, you saw Herod. We know it is Herod the Great. Now, the, the, the Herods mentioned here are Herod the Great's sons that we see. Uh, maybe you're a sports fan like me and maybe you watch the World Cup and I think Leo Messi uh, solidified his place as the greatest soccer player ever. Yeah? I was watching Michael Jordan. He comes from my generation. I'm watching his movie, The Last Dance, a second time this week. And he is definitely the greatest basketball player to ever exist. And the greatest athlete is Bo Jackson. No doubt about it. How about a president or a leader? Maybe when you think of greatness or great people, you think of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Tomorrow we celebrate the, the great legacy of Martin, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his effect on our country. Or maybe it's not any of those guys. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a mom, a dad, a grandparent. But how many of you would have said this? How many of you would have said John the Baptist? That's the first person I think of when I think of greatness is John the Baptist. Well, in Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself said, John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman. How would you like that to be said about you? From Jesus. Jesus points out John the Baptist. And so for us this morning, what would the greatest man according to Jesus have to say to us this morning? To the world that we live in. As we look around at our broken world, as we look around at our broken culture, uh, the message that John would preach to us uh, is a message that we need to hear so desperately. John's message would be a message of repentance. It'd be a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And today, you and I are going to get to hear that message from John this morning, from him himself. And, and before before looking out there and saying, yeah, the world is broken. The, wor the world does need to repent. We need to work. We need to look in here. We need to look in our own hearts, in our own souls, to see if we are right with God, to see if we have repented of our sin for our forgiveness of sin. We want to be certain this morning of our salvation, and it comes through Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance really is a message of life and death. 
Uh, as I already mentioned, uh, Nate and I took our uh, Nate's brother, my son, to South Carolina. We drove him out and flew back, and we got to drive through the great Midwest, the Bible Belt, right? And as you're driving along I-70, you see sign after sign after sign says that we have many choices, somebody here, we have many choices in life, but there's only one choice that will last for eternity. Therefore, repent and believe in Jesus. John would be proud of those signs down I-70. And this is again the point of Luke chapter 3. So let's look at Luke chapter 3 and repentance for the forgiveness of sin. First we see, we see the forerunner's message of personal repentance. We see the forerunner's message of personal repentance. Luke chapter 3 uh, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip the tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Tranconis and Licinius and a tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of uh, Annas and Caiaphas. And quickly we have to remind ourselves like why did Luke write the book of Luke? We're going through the book of Luke, line by line, verse by verse. Why did Luke write? Do you remember? He wrote it to his pal, his best buddy. He wrote it to that, so that Theophilus could be certain that the things he believes are true. This is why Luke is writing this book. So therefore, he gives an orderly account of the gospel unfolding to the world. And this is where Luke places the, the beginning of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry in real time, in history. The events in Luke 3 take place around 29 AD when these emperors, these governors, these high priests rule. We see the world leader at the time was Tiberius Caesar of the Roman Empire. We see the, the governor of the state was Pontius Pilate. We see the local leaders of the local county and city officials of Herod and his brother Philip. We see the religious leaders, Ananias, the retired high priest, and Caiaphas, the current high priest. And, and it would be like us today saying that in the second year of President Joe Biden, God help us, we got two more years left with that guy, right? Did I just say that out loud? I did, sorry. Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, the mayor of Fort Collins, Jenny Arnon, and the pastor of the Crossing Church, Aaron Santini. This is what this, this story happens in real time, real history. It's important. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fiction. It's historically reliable. And this is so crucial, even to us. Sometimes we're like, why even talk about this history? Why don't we just read over it and just move on? This happened 2,000 years ago. It doesn't really matter. It matters tremendously here because in our culture, there is a worldview that is trying to systematically rewrite or cancel our history, destroy it altogether. Statues coming down, universities changing their ways in which they teach history. And in particular for Christianity, they want to stomp us out altogether. So the history of the Christian faith is so vitally important right now that we pass down this history of the historical reliability of Jesus Christ to those that come after us. Real people in real time. 
Now let's look at the end of verse 2. It said, the, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now we're familiar with John. Again, we started with Advent in Luke chapter 1. I mean, we're, 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 from, we're familiar with John. He's been mentioned in, in Luke 1, in Luke 2, and now in Luke 3. We know that Luke came from this priestly line from his father, uh, Zacchaeus. But John was an outcast. Uh, John bucked the status quo nationally and spiritually. He didn't get trained up like his father in the Levitical priesthood. The, the dude lived out in the wilderness somewhere. And when we think wilderness, don't think Rocky Mountain wilderness. Think like desert wilderness and like barren desert wilderness. Like this wilderness that John grew up in would make Tucson, Arizona look like Versailles Gardens, Okay. This is where he lived. He wore camel's hair. He lived off of locusts and honey. In other words, he didn't have to worry about counting calories like us, right? He didn't have New Year's resolutions to get back to the gym to take off the holiday pounds. And it was here, at this moment in history, with this man, an outcast, in the desert, in the wilderness, where what does it say? The Word of God came to John. This is where God met John. 30 years later, after it was prophesied from the angel Gabriel that John is going to be the forerunner that we see in verse 4 and 5 where John again is highlighted as the forerunner. Quote from Isaiah chapter 40. That the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. This guy is coming. And all flesh shall see the salvation of the God. This is John's mission that he was given as an infant, even before he was even born. And here we see it coming to pass. Now we have the Holy Spirit raising up John, God meeting him and saying, John, now's the time. Now's the time, John, for you to go and be the pointer of Jesus. He is coming right behind you. 30 years later, John finally gets his marching orders. And look in verse 3. John obeys. He leaves the desert and he immediately goes into all the region around the Jordan, the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The Jordan River is about 150 plus miles from north to south. So John would be going up and down the Jordan River and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And here what we have is a summary. Luke is giving a summary of John's ministry. And of, in particular, his message. And again, we have to remember that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. This is a transition period that's happening from the Old Testament and the New Testament. John is the last Old Testament priest and prophet now bringing us into the high priest. The high priest. Pointing us to Jesus Christ. So there's a transition. The gospel message of the new covenant hasn't been fully developed, revealed yet. And John is preparing his people for the fullness of the gospel and Jesus and what that all implies. You can see in verse 18 just quickly, it says, so with this and many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But, John, but Luke here, Again, he highlights John's central message. What does he proclaim? It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, this is not a salvation of works. 
Luke is not saying that John is saying, hey, be baptized and then you will be saved. That's not what he's saying here. Look carefully when you read. John preached a baptism of repentance. Meaning that he first called the people to repent of their sin. And then the next act of obedience was if they confessed and repented of their sin, then they would be forgiven by God. The next step would be then be baptized. So still, by faith, we are saved. And repentance. So, John is baptizing those who repent of their sin and who have been forgiven by God. And, so, and really, the, the, the question asked is, what is repentance? Because in a group of this size, there might be some of you like, man, I've never really been to church before. I'm, I haven't heard the message of the gospel. I don't know where repentance is. Most of us do. But some of you right here in here might say, man, I've never repented before. I don't even know what it means to repent then, right? So what is repentance? I love how one sums it up. He says this, it's a change of the heart and mind. It's an acknowledgement in light of the holiness and goodness of God that we are sinful. We're enemies of God and that he is holy. And that is a problem to him. So repentance is turning from sin to God by faith through Jesus. That's what, that's what repentance is. Repentance is the idea that we are, apart from Christ, are all pursuing our passions, all pursuing our desires, our sinful passions and desires. That's what we're going after. That's what we're holding on to. That's what's driving us. And to repent is to say like, oh, in light of God's goodness and holiness and what He requires, this is not good. This leads down a path of destruction and death and hell. Therefore, I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn from that. And I'm going to embrace His path through His Son, Jesus. I'm going to repent of my sin. And I'm going to look to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And from this time forward, my life now is driven by Jesus' desires. God's Word for my life. That is what repentance is. And this was, this was John the Baptist's sole message. This is what he preached with a passion and with a conviction. He was a one-string guitar. And repentance for the forgiveness of sin was that song he played. Which brings us to a question. Again, John was in the desert. Now he's up in the Jordan. It's 150 miles. People are flocking from all over uh, Israel and that region to hear John preach. Why? I mean, some people would have to travel 10, 20, some even 30 plus miles by foot or by animal to hear John preach. Why? Well, it's obvious. One answer is obviously God's providence drew them out there. But I also love what one pointed out practically. People were drawn to him because of the power of the message and the passion John had for that message. He, he was convicted like this is it. This is the message to give your life to. The gospel, repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The people would come out, they would hear him preach repentance, call out their sin and said, hey, if you don't repent, there's judgment coming. So repent and, 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 and be converted to the goodness of God. The, the, their lives would be changed as they would be baptized. The old man would be dunked in the water. The new man come out. This would all be Complete in more detail, become more clear later on in the New Testament, but that's what was happening then. 
They would go home back to their villages and be like, man, this dude John, he's got the message of life. Not only does he believe it, but it leads to life transformation. You need to go see him. So people were flocking to him because of his passion and conviction for repentance. David Hume was an 18th century philosopher, antagonistic to the Christian faith, hostile to the Christian faith, wrote against the Christian faith, but he, he lived along the same time as George Whitfield, who was an a, a incredible preacher and evangelist at that time. And sometimes David Hume would go and travel maybe 10, 20 miles to listen to George Whitfield preach. And one day while he was there, one of the people recognized David Hume. He said, bro, what, what are you doing here? You don't believe this, what this guy's saying. And David Hume said, no, I don't, but that guy does. And I wanted to come hear what he has to say. So that begs a question for you and me. Do your friends see that passion and conviction for the gospel in your life? When you talk about Jesus, is that what they see? That passion, that conviction, not only in your words, but also in your actions, do they line up? Not perfectly, of course. John the Baptist wasn't perfectly. But is that the trajectory of your life, your words, that your actions? Do they, maybe when trials hit them, they think, man, I need to run to Aaron because he has the answers. I need to ask him, what would Jesus do? Do they seek you out because of your conviction, your passion for the gospel? Like these individuals sought out John? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, set a man on fire and the people will come watch him burn. John the Baptist was on fire for Jesus. And that was attractive. Today you have people in your circle of influence that are hurting, that are suffering, from identity crisis, don't know what they believe, why they believe it, but they see, do they see you on fire for Jesus? Does that penetrate their heart? And they'd be like, I need to get around them. They have something I don't. My wife, uh, she didn't know Jesus when we started dating. Don't advise that, that's bad. We did everything backwards, God was gracious. But as you guys know, my mom passed away on Christmas Eve right before my, my uh, draft year uh, in college. So it was supposed to be a big year for me. And uh, my mom passed away on Christmas Eve. She had an allergic reaction to a, a, a nutmeg at a, at a party. She passed away. And uh, Rita, that was one of the instances that Rita turned her heart towards Christ. She said, she saw... The, our family, and in particular myself, my, my, my devastation of my mom passing away. I was devastated. But at the same time, she saw a peace and a security in my faith. And this is what she said. She said, on my best day, I never have that peace. But on Aaron's worst day, he has that peace. Because of Jesus, because of the gospel. John was set on fire. That takes us to our second point. We bear the fruits of personal repentance. We, every Christian who has repented, we, there's, there's fruit that follows 
our repentance. We see that in Luke 3, 7 through 14. And again, so the people, I mean, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of people are flocking to find out where this guy John is up and down this 150 miles up the Jordan River. And we're not sure where John is or exactly, you know, where, where he is. But when they get there, the people might be caught off a little bit off guard by the message when John first sees them. Let's look at it in verse 7. This is how John first engaged them. He says, oh, my friends, my beloved, I'm so glad you came out. When you leave here, you're going to have a a feel-good message. You're going to feel good. Is that what it says in verse 7? No, he said this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The seeker-sensitive coaches of the day, if you wanted to start a ministry or plant a church, they would say, like, John, that's not the way you go about first message and addressing the people that are coming to hear you for the first time. And sadly, today in many churches, would not and do not preach like John. They do not preach or even talk about sin or judgment because it's not winsome. It's offensive. It's judgmental. You're going to turn people off. But this is the message of the Gospel. John understands this, and we understand it at the crossing as well. That to understand, to appreciate, to love, to experience the good news of the Gospel in all of its implications, to understand the good news, you must first know the bad news. Right? What you're saved from. First, the Gospel informs us what we're saved from, and then it tells us what we're saved to. It tells us the bad news first, and then it gives us the good news, which makes us love the good news all the more. That's why we sing about the Gospel every day, and His grace, His mercy, and His goodness to us. And John doesn't beat around the bush about the bad news. He calls people coming out to him, you brood of vipers. Now this strikes directly at their hearts. They know exactly what John is calling them, or what yeah, what John the Baptist is calling them. We know what a brood is. A brood is a certain animals have a lot of lot of babies at, at one time. That's a brood, right? We know what a viper is. It's the same there. It's it's a snake. But in particular to Israel and the people coming out to hear, when they would hear snake, they would immediately think of Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve as Satan. So what is John calling them? It's not culturally appropriate. He's calling them offsprings of Satan. That's what he's calling them. You offsprings of Satan. You offsprings, you children of the devil. Why have you come out here? That's bad news. But you've got to understand the bad news before you hear the good news. Paul basically says the same thing. To those of us outside of Christ, not covered by His blood, His righteousness, we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that, that Chad preached a couple uh, weeks ago, by nature children of wrath. We're going to follow after our father, the devil. That doesn't mean we're going to be Satanists, but that means those attributes that he and characteristics that describe him are going to describe us prideful, jealousy, covetousness, 
self-righteous. These are the the fruits that we're going to exude. And John says, if this is you, you're under judgment. Look at verse 9. He doesn't beat around the bush. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Not the tree, not the tree trunk. At the very root, the very lifeblood of the tree, that's where the the axe of judgment is. Right there at the root of life, your life, my life. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the bad news. But there's good news. If that was all that news that we'd have, man, we'd be in a hurt and stuff. But there's good news. There's good news for us to rejoice in. That if you repent of your sins, then you will be forgiven. As Cole mentioned today, that, that though our sins are like scarlet, they will be forgiven and we will be turned to white as snow. God will remember our sins no more. They're further from the east, from the west. When He looks at you, He no longer sees a sinner, but He sees a saint. Pure, holy, and righteous. That, my friends, is not good news. That's great news. And if you are a good tree, then you will do, as verse 8 says, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You, You will now... Show your characteristics and attributes of your life will now be that of your Savior, Jesus. That's who you model your life in. Remember, you turned away from this path and you're on this path and the the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control will flow out of you. Martin Luther said this, that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Good fruit comes from that. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But if this is true in your life, then again, you will take on the attributes and desires of your Savior, Jesus. You will look differently from the world. Now John preaches this message. He knows how they're going to respond, so he's preemptive. Look at the second half of verse 8. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham, our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. What he's saying is, hey, you can't, you, you, you can't depend on your family tree. You can't, you can't depend on Grandpa Abraham for your salvation. No, this salvation is, is individual. It's an individual call for each of us individually to repent of our sins. We, we can't rest ourselves on our parents and kids in here. Teenagers in here. Listen up. This, this portion of Scripture, John is directly talking to you. And maybe even some adults in here. That, that you're, you're growing up in good Christian homes, good Christian environments here at the crossing. Your parents are showing you the way to the Lord through the Gospel. They're loving you. They're cherishing you. They're teaching you your Bible. They're teaching you how to pray. But that won't get you to heaven. What's going to get you guys to heaven is that if you yourselves repent of your own sin, your own rebellion from God, and embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So this message right here is written to you in particular. Will those that are listening to John, they grasp the significance, and it goes from a monologue to a dialogue. Look at verse 10. We see three times in four verses, the people start to cry out, well, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? And John gives practical suggestions to prove that their repentance is genuine. And and these practical suggestions can play out in our lives to show that it's true in our lives as well. 
Now, you might not be a tax gatherer, you might not be a soldier, but everyone's in the general crowd, and these are just human responses to the repentance of God in your life, and they can be experienced by all of us. First, he, gen- he looks at the crowd in general. Look at verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics, share with him, and whoever who has none, and whoever has food, do likewise. What, what, what's the implication there? What's the attribute? What's the characteristic? It's to share. It's to be compassionate to your neighbor, to a stranger that's naked, that doesn't have clothes, that's, that's hungry, that doesn't have food. Those people in your circle of influence that you know God has placed you in that position to show them the fruit of repentance that you've been changed by the gospel and you serve. You give of what you have. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said this, a heart that has been converted is a heart that loves. A heart that has been converted by the good news of the gospel is a heart that loves. That loves people in need who are hurting. So share and be compassionate. Who in your circle of influence right now needs you to step in and be compassionate? And that might be a physical need. That might be an emotional need. But God has put you in that place to step in. To be compassionate. He goes down to the tax gatherers in verse 12. The tax gatherers also came up to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to. Now the people in this day, Israel in particular, didn't like the tax gatherers that were collecting taxes from them on behalf of Rome and Caesar because they were their own countrymen. They were their own kin. They saw them as traitors because they were working for the one who was oppressing them and their people. And they were the ones coming and gathering the taxes, the money, to help Rome do that to them. So they were not fond of the IRS, right? And not much has changed. Does anyone here love the IRS? Go ahead and raise your hand, right? Not much has changed. Anyone excited about the 87,000 that are coming down the pike? No. But notice... John doesn't say, hey, quit the IRS. Stop being a tax gatherer. He doesn't say that. He says, do your job faithfully and be honest and don't steal. Don't extort money. You have a job. It's a job that's paying for your family. Therefore, do it in a way that honors the Lord. Don't extort money from your countrymen. Stop stealing. Now, Stealing can be done in a variety of ways in our context. That can be money, but it can also be time. Right? You, you go work for an employee. He gives you a certain amount of hours during the day. So when you're at your job and you're on the clock, work. Be a great worker. Work hard. Don't sit and spend an hour on social media. Don't, don't take time when you're on the clock to go do personal errands. That's stealing time from your boss. And there's a variety of other ways that you can steal. Third, we see soldiers. Verse 14, he says, soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Be content with your wages. Again, John doesn't say, hey, leave the military. No, he says, where you're at, 
Be a good soldier. Don't abuse your power. Don't intimidate people by your position to gain financially. That could be a soldier. That could be a businessman or woman. That could be a parent. Don't use your power. Don't abuse or intimidate your children to obey. He goes on to say, stop gossiping. Stop spreading false accusations. Stop lying. Stop gossiping about one another. Finally, he says, be content in what you're paid. You signed up for this job. You know what, you know what they said they were going to pay you? So be content in it. It's not saying that, you, that you know, if you work at a fast food joint, then that, don't be disgruntled about, you know, I'm only getting paid whatever it is. I mean, minimum wage is what now? 15 bucks an hour? Back in the 80s, again, back, you know, when I it was like three bucks an hour, right? So stop complaining, all right? <laughs> you guys are getting paid to take orders. But if you have a desire to, for more, that's okay. That's a good desire. But again, the job you're in, be content. Be content where you're at right now. This is where the Lord has you. So be content. In other words, what John is saying, wherever you're at or whatever you do, if you have repented of your sins and you follow Jesus, then bear fruit where you're at. You are bringing Jesus to the workplace. You are bringing Jesus to the school. You are bringing Jesus, obviously, first and foremost, to your home and to your children. So this week, be a witness to the people around you that you've been called to, that you live with, that you work with, and that you play with, and be, again, a bearer of the fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, what does it look like? Let me just give you really quickly. We've seen some. It might be the three we just mentioned before. But bear fruit of humility and not pride. Bear the fruit of joy and not anger. Bear the fruit of encouragement and not discouragement. Bear the fruit of patience and not frustration. Bear the fruit of love and not hate. Bear the fruit of grace and forgiveness and not law and works. Amen? Quickly, thirdly, that leads us to our third. We look to the figure, Christ, who blesses repentance. Luke 3, 15-20. Luke 3, 15 says this, the people were in expectation for the coming of Christ and wondered if John was it. Remember, there was 400 years of silence before this. These are the first words that God says, John the Baptist, to the world that says, hey, the, the Messiah, the Christ is coming <clears throat> to save your souls. They were looking forward to it and they wondered, man, is John it? Is, is, is John the Messiah? Is he the Savior? Is he the one coming right now? I mean, he speaks with authority and power and passion and conviction. And they asked that to him. And you can see John's response. And, you know, at first you might think like, man, there's a little temptation here on John's part, right? John is saying like, hey, people are saying to John, like, are you the Christ? John could have played that one out a little bit. He could have played the game a little bit, right? His pride for, for pride and power. Stroke his ego a little bit. Maybe even get paid a little bit by saying, yeah, maybe. But he doesn't do that at all. Look at verse 16. He says, no, 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 no. 
I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the straps whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It's an incredible statement of humility. Back then, the job of the lowliest servant in the house, when the, when the people would come home, they would be there and they would, the, the, the servants would untie uh, the, their sandals. And, 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 and back then, they didn't have paved roads or sidewalks like we do. They were walking on dirty roads. They were walking on muddy roads. They were walking on roads that were filled with air, uh, animal urine and, and a bunch of landmines. And, and they would have been stepping in these things. And so the lowliest servant would, would untie their shoes. And John says, I'm even lowlier than that. I, I, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. And not only that, but he proves even more about John's inability to be even compared to the Christ. He says in verse uh, 16, he says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What he's saying is here, water baptism is an external act. Anyone can baptize someone. But what he can do, it's not about external, it's about internal. Only Jesus can baptize you and change your heart. Only He can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a debate, is this the second baptism of the Holy Spirit or is this about judgment? I think context clearly states that this this baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, is not about judgment. It's a baptism into the body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit here is a dry baptism. It is a one-time act that seals our belonging to the covenant community of Christ that gives us a new heart through regeneration and empowers us with new spiritual life and the power to live for Christ, to bear fruit. This is who Jesus baptized. He sends us the Holy Spirit to seal us, to give us the ability of regenerate, or he regenerates our heart and he empowers us to live for Christ. And you can't be a Christian without this baptism. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that you cannot call on the Lord unless the Holy Spirit draws you. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, except by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealing you, giving you the ability and power, and then indwelling you to live for Christ in His glory. So John says, no, 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 I ain't got that power. There's only one that has that power, and that's the Christ. And I'm pointing you to Him. I am not He. Not only does He baptize, the Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but He baptizes you with judgment as well. The Christ will not only baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but for those who don't repent of their sin, He will baptize them with judgment and fire, it says. And again, the fire here is in the context and the context of Luke as general, not only writing in the book of Luke, but also in Acts, is always describing judgment. Verse 17, his willing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. He gives this great illustration of what is meant by fire and judgment back then, what they would do to get the wheat from the chaff, that they would take a pitchfork, they put all the wheat and the chaff, all the things in, the, in a big pile, they'd take the pitchfork, they'd take the pitchfork and they, they, they put in the pile, they would throw it up into the wind, and the wind would blow away the, tra- the chaff because it was light, but the wheat that was heavy would s- go straight down to the ground. They would collect the wheat because that was good, those kernels, they would put it in uh, the barn or wherever they put it, and they would take the chaff, they would gather that up, and they would go put it in the fire to burn because it was useless. So again, the question is, are you chaff or are you wheat this morning? Are you chaff or are you wheat this morning? Here's the good news. Today is the day of salvation. If you find yourself 
that you haven't repented and trusted in Christ yet. Today is good news. Today is a good day for you. You can repent of your sin. Be forgiven. Your life can take on a whole new meaning, a whole new trajectory of joy, of peace, of security in the midst of living in a Genesis 3 world. Today is a day of repentance. So each and every one of you, just ask yourself that question. If you feel you are chaffed, today is the day. We're not on the final day of judgment. There is time, and time is for you today. The pitchfork hasn't been thing, uh, put in a pile and thrown up yet. You have time to repent, so repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and experience the joy, the love, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life and propelling you on your way to glory and ultimate joy. Psalm says, in your presence, and God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Do you want joy? Do you want pleasures? It's found in Jesus. How do you get to Jesus? By repenting of your sins and trusting in Him. Quickly, there's a side note in here in verse 18 where it talks about Herod. You don't want to be Herod. When John confronted Herod and confronted his sin about his relationship, this immoral relationship with his wife Herodias, Herod didn't repent. Instead, he fought. He threw John the Baptist in prison and ultimately had him beheaded. Well, let's just say Herod's burning right now. So don't be Herod. In fact, repent and trust in Christ. And for those of us that have experienced the grace of God, given us a new heart through regeneration, who have repented of our sin, the call to you and me this morning is bear fruit in keeping of repentance. Let your life be a joyful, uh, a joyful noise to the world around you. That when they see you, they see Jesus. It begins with you individually, and then your circles of influence first, your most immediate ones with your family, and then those in your circles of influence where you live, work, and play. These are great words from John the Baptist to one. They're sobering, but yet they're joyful. And so let us, again, listen and respond to John's word of repentance today for the forgiveness of our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this word. It's a good word. It's a sobering word. It's a joyful word. Because again, Luke is writing this account specifically of John the Baptist to his good friend say, Hey, I'm writing you an order of the account so that you may be certain what you believe is true. May that be the same for us this morning. What is true is to get to heaven, to have salvation, to live a life of joy and security, of peace and of grace is found only in the Messiah, the Christ, the one that John was pointing to, and the one that we look back and know is Jesus Christ Himself. May every person in here that hears this message either repent of their sins today or have repented and bear fruit in keeping of repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.